Welcome to the international teaching ministry of Dr. Joseph G. Matera. As the presiding bishop of Christ Covenant Coalition, he travels the world teaching biblical truth with profound results in both the church world and the marketplace. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and transform your mind as His Word is spoken by one of God's ablest communicators. Such a blessing to be here with you guys and to be with your pastor and his wife and the great staff here. Um, you know, I'm so uh, blessed to be able to travel and meet so many different leaders and um, and this United States coalition is really a significant undertaking, so definitely pray for us. Um, and uh, Pastor Ron has a lot of influence, and tomorrow we'll be meeting with several leaders from uh, the, the, the area here in this region. Um, and so we're praying and believing God that God's going to give us strategies to move the church along in these very perilous times. So... That being said, um, I want to talk to you about uh, the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. If you want to turn there with me, John chapter 17. I want to talk about the prayer of one cent. Now, because all of us are called to be like Christ, we can take some of the principles of this passage, of this prayer, of this chapter, and we can definitely apply it to ourselves. And the Lord laid this on my heart last night as I was praying about today's service, so I've never ministered on this before. So uh, I, I'm interested myself in how this is going to come out. So, <laughs> so in John chapter 17... We're going to just take different portions of this. Um, in John 17, this is the prayer Jesus prayed right before he was uh, brought before Pontius Pilate and crucified. This is really the Lord's Prayer. You know, we call the prayer he taught us to pray in Luke 11 and Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. But this is his actual prayer. This is the only recording of uh, uninterrupted prayer of Jesus. And it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he looked upward to heaven and said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that he may glorify you, just as you have given him authority over all flesh, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I have glorified you on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me by your side with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed your name to the men you have given me out of the world. They belong to you, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they have understood that everything you have given me comes from you because I have given them the words that you have given me. And they accepted them and really understand that I came from you and believe that you sent me. I am praying on behalf of them. I am not praying on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those you have given me because they belong to you. Everything I have belongs to you and everything you have belongs to me and I've been glorified by them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them safe in your name 
that you have given me, so that they may be one just as we are one. When I was with them, I kept them safe and watched over them. In your name, and I, the, the name that you have given me, not one of them was lost except the one destined to destruction so that the scripture could be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and I am saying these things in the world that they may experience my joy complete in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to the world just as I don't belong to the world. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. And I set myself apart on their behalf so that they too may be truly set apart. I am not praying only on their behalf, but also on those who will believe in me through their testimony or through their words, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are me, and I am in you. I pray that they may be one in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. And the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be completely made one so that the world will know that you sent me and you have loved them just as you have loved me. Father, I wish, or I, I want rather, that you have given me to be with me, that you've given them to be with me where I am so that they can see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, even if the world does not know you, I know you, and these men know that you sent me. I made known your name to them, and I will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me may be in them, and I may be in them. So, Father, we pray you'd bless this now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. And so when we look at this, uh, I want to go back to verse 1. Jesus said, as he lifted up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that he may glorify you. And as we think of our life and we think of the principles that we can receive from this passage, uh, we find that Jesus depended on the Father to glorify him so that he can glorify the Father which means that we can only exalt the Father to the extent that he first exalts us. And so by the word glorify, we mean exalt, lift up, prepare a platform, uh, give space to, give opportunity to, give a ministry to. Uh, and oftentimes when we want to be used by God, we allow our own ambitions to come in and we try to create our own platform we try to move ourselves up, and uh, those of you who have been involved in ministry for a long time, especially the kind of ministry uh, Apostle Ron has been involved in, there are politics in the church as much as there is in the world. And you see people jockeying for position, you see people trying to make their own way, trying to manipulate things, coerce people, uh, play games with this, different things to uh, you know, win people over so that they can have more influence. Uh, you see it in local churches as well. Every church has the same things that go on to a certain extent, although the more stable churches have ways of modifying that. And, uh, and so you see Jesus' perspective on this 
was that the Father had to glorify him so that he can glorify the Father, which means that uh, we should allow the Father to give us the opportunities that he wants us to have. We should allow the Father to uh, create our platform uh, and not try to create our own platform in life and in ministry. It doesn't mean that we sit around just praying, waiting for him to do something. Of course, we're faithful, whatever he gives us. Uh, but there are certain opportunities that we try to create and make for ourselves, and then when we walk through these doors, we don't have the grace to sustain it, and that's how we hurt our families, and that's how we burn out. And so Jesus' prayer here is so powerful. Father, glorify me. Exalt me. Do what you want to do, and then I can exalt you. At the end of the day, we can only glorify God in those areas he has called us to glorify him in. Right? And when we try to go beyond that, then we are responsible for sustaining ourselves. And then he says in verse 2, as you have given him authority over all flesh so that he can give eternal life to whom you have given him. Now, obviously, Jesus has been given authority in heaven and earth. So he has authority over all flesh. But his corporate body, his church, representing him, as it says in Ephesians 1, and 23, the church is his fullness, the fullness of him uh, on the earth, basically, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. We are his fullness, so we represent him as a corporate body, which means that not one of us has authority or influence over all flesh like Jesus did or does, but all of us individually make up that whole influence in the world, which means that every one of us has some level of influence. So Jesus has influence over all flesh. Every one of us individually have influence over some flesh, over some people. Uh, we are called to rule. We have a metron of rule. We have a, uh, a certain lane God has called us to operate in. And so when we understand the platform God has given us, the second thing we have to understand is what measure of rule. Uh, if God has given you a measure of rule over five people, don't try to make it 100 people. Uh, don't go beyond the faith that he has given you. Don't go beyond uh, the calling. Uh, in other words, try to discern what is the measure of rule, what is the measure of influence God has given us. And so God has given the corporate church, representing him, influence over the, all the nations. We've been called to disciple the nations. But as individuals, we're not called to disciple every nation. It's impossible. We can't be experts in every field. We can't have influence in every aspect of culture. But if you're called to the realm of architecture or philosophy or education or uh, pastorally or uh, in politics or economics, you have a certain amount of influence. And in those stratas of influence, you have a certain subculture of influence in those stratas of influence. So everybody has to understand what uh, level of influence they have and to whom they're called to have that influence. As far as I'm concerned, the greatest call any of us have um, are for those that are given to us biologically as our children, 
and our families and our spiritual children. That's always the most important thing. And so parents, you have the greatest calling. Uh, that is your number one realm of influence. That never changes, and other things in our life fluctuate as time goes on. So he has authority over all flesh. We have authority over some flesh. And then he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So basically what he's saying is the bottom line is, which means the eternal life for all eternity, this is what we're going to have. This is the ultimate goal, that we may know him. And that word, uh, know God, is always an experiential word in the original languages in the Greek. Uh, and so it doesn't mean a mental understanding. It doesn't mean an intellectual assent. That's part of it. But what it's talking about is an experiential knowledge of God, that we have that personal relationship with him. Uh, that's the Hebraic way of understanding knowledge. In the Greek mindset, the understanding of knowledge is just intellectual. But in the Hebraic mindset, it's always a fullness. It's an experiential. It's a relational. And so the ultimate end of all of our influence, the ultimate end of why God has sent us into the world is for us to know God but to make him known. How can we make him known if we don't know him? So we have to know him, but then our rule, our measure of influence, and our calling the world has to result in helping other people get to know God, get to know him, and have eternal life. So we can do all the humanitarian work in the world, but if it doesn't result in bringing people to a saving knowledge of Christ, if that is not our primary goal, then we are making a mistake. And so this is the bottom line, he's saying. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then he said in verse 4, I've glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. This is such a powerful uh, statement. What he's saying is we do not glorify God by how good we start. We glorify God by how good we end. I glorify you having accomplished or finished the work you've given me to do. And so we have to begin our work as we feel we are the sent ones. We are called into the world. We're the ones representing Christ. We have to always begin with the end in mind. We always have to think about what would it look like if I finish well? What does it look like? What is the ultimate goal? What is he calling me to do? Um, and it doesn't matter how well you start the marathon, right? You could run faster than everybody, first three miles, but you blow out your energy, and the next thing you know, you don't finish the race. There's a lot of people who don't finish the race. There's a lot of people who start off really strong. They're like shooting stars, uh, even pastors. Many of them, they start off the first five or ten years in the ministry. They have these huge churches. Next thing you know, they're not around anymore. So it doesn't matter how good you start, but Jesus said, I've glorified you having finished the work you've given me to do. We have to stay in our lane. We have to know what he's called us to do. We have to be faithful. We have to be consistent. We don't have to worry about all the great ups and downs in life. Uh, they're going to come to everybody. There's going to be a crisis in everybody's life. There's going to be situations that we're dealing with all the time. The only thing in life 
and the only thing in your life that will never change is that change will always happen. Right? So the only thing that doesn't change is that change will always be there. And we have to get used to that. We're always living in transition. As I look at my life, the last 35 years, I think every year I was in transition. And transition to what is the ultimate question, but I've been in transition for 35 years since I came to know the Lord. Um, but it's exciting anyway, isn't it? All right. So I glorified you having accomplished the work or finished the work you've given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence or with your own self, in the King James Version, with the glory I had with you before the world began. Very powerful. He said, glorify me with your own self or in your own presence. Um, oftentimes, even we in the charismatic Pentecostal church especially, we get caught up with feeling God's presence. But this is deeper. He said, glorify me with your own self which means that we have to go past just feeling his presence to knowing his person. If we're going to be sent ones, if we're going to be uh, effective in this world, we have to know God personally. We have to know his personality, his being, his attributes. We have to understand how he thinks in, in terms of what he's revealed to us. We have to understand God's ways. It tells us in Psalm 103, verse 8 to 10, that the children of Israel knew God's works, but Moses knew God's ways. And so Jesus knew the Father's ways. We need to know his ways. And so uh, a lot of times we just run to church because we want to feel his presence. Even unsaved people can feel God's energy and God's presence and get a sense of God's glory. But uh, we in the church have to go deeper and know God's person and be addicted to the person of Christ, not just the presence of Christ. That's a very important distinction there. Uh, and that's why a lot of times churches will put so much emphasis on uh, these experiences in church. They have smoke coming out. They have videos. Uh, the worship team is called to hype everybody up and is just like, Everyone's trying to find some kind of experience. But at the end of the day, if we don't get to know God's person, then we are not going to uh, walk in his calling. And so Jesus said the only way he can glorify God would be with his own self. And then he says that I had with you before the world began, the presence, the glory that he had it's very interesting. It tells us in 2 Timothy 1.9 that Jesus saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the world began. Whew. So Jesus said, uh, I want to glorify you in your own presence that you gave me before the world existed. And Obviously, Jesus always existed. He was never created, and we are created. However, Jesus created us in his heart first. In other words, it says in 2 Timothy 1.9 that he gave us a 
purpose before the world began, which means that every one of us had a purpose before we were given a physical body. Isn't that amazing? That means that you are not called to create your purpose. You're called to discover your purpose. As you walk with God, your purpose that God already gave you, that he wired inside of you, that is innate and intuitively set in you, uh, is something that we live to continually discover. It's amazing. Uh, and as we know God and surrender to him, we actually get to know ourselves better. And again, the problem comes when we try to be who we're not called to be. You can't be anything you want to be. I know Oprah Winfrey and some of these motivational speakers say you could just dream and be anything you want to be. That's not true. That causes destruction. You can only be who God has called you to be. And it's just as, as important to know your weaknesses as it is to know your strengths. It's just as important to know your limitations as it is to know what your liberties are. And uh, the sooner you come to the place of your limitations, that is the place where you'll have focus. That is the place where you'll have rest. That is the place where you'll stop comparing yourself with others. That is the place where you will be the most powerful in life. There'll never be another you. And if you try to be somebody else, that's when you are going to hurt yourself. And then he says, oh, one other thing I just want to say here. Uh, so we were not just merely born. This is what you have to understand. This revolutionized my life. The Lord showed this to me several years ago. He said, you are not born you were sent. When you say, I was born, you're just talking about your physical body. No, you had a purpose before you had a physical body. God sent you into the world, and your body is just a carrier of your purpose. So we have to understand that. So these principles of Jesus' prayer can be applied to us. And then in verse 6, he said, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. The name represents his character, represents his being. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you have given me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. So those that are sent, that's us, are called to manifest his name, that's his character, his being, and bring his word, uh, which means that we need to be people of the book. Uh, So the only way we can represent his name, which represents who he is and represents his character, is to know his word. So you just, you know, that's why he said, uh, I was called to manifest your name, and then he brings out, they have given your words all in the same sentence because you cannot represent God's name without knowing God's word. God's name and God's word go hand in hand. So that means we have to be people of the book. We have to be saturated with the book to represent his name, not just saying in the name of Jesus, 
I command you to be healed. We have to manifest his name, meaning the word of God has to be strong in us so that his name just overflows out of our being. Who he is, his character, his essence, uh, who he is in terms of his goodness and his power and his anointing all comes out of being saturated with his word. Uh, and then he says in verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, that they are yours. Very interesting. Even his prayers were focused. All that is mine is yours, and yours are mine, that I am, and I am glorified in them. And so the attitude of one cent is that we own nothing. Isn't that powerful? He said, all that is mine, Father, is yours, and all that is yours is mine. Now, we try to reverse that. We try to say, all that is yours is mine, right? We say that first, and then we say, hesitantly, uh, all that is mine is yours. No, you can't say all that is his is yours until you could first say all that is mine is yours. See, to the extent that we surrender all of our life to God, to that extent can he trust us with all that he has. That's why it says in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you don't delight yourself in God, he can't trust your heart. But when your heart's desire is the pleasure of God, when you get more pleasure in God than you get in anything else in this world, then he can give you the desire of your heart because your heart cries out for the things of God. He can trust you. Very powerful thing here. All that is mine is yours and all that is yours is mine. Wow. Wow. And then he says in verse 11, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now, now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy filled in the, fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. And so he's telling us the world is going to hate us. He's telling us that we're not of the world. Uh, Christians uh, are so upset over the ruling of the Supreme Court, and rightfully so because it could hurt our families and changes the culture. But a lot of what the Christians are upset at are selfish. The main reason why many Christians are upset is because we do not want to be inconvenienced. We do not want to be persecuted. We do not want to lose our tax-exempt status. We, do not, we want to be able to give our tithes and offerings with a full tax write-off. We don't want to be inconvenienced. Well, sometimes God allows the world to hate us, and sometimes God allows persecution because he's so fed up with the lukewarm Laodicean church that he allows persecution because he wants the real church to stand up and he wants to separate the chaff from the wheat. And these Christian leaders that have been waffling between two opinions and saying things like Jesus doesn't take a stand on social issues, they are now between a rock and a hard place. 
when people start flooding their churches, wanting to get married, I wonder what they're going to do now. So those of us who have already made our stand clear will have no such issue because we might have, we will have persecution, but we're not going to have to apologize to people that we lied to by giving them the impression that it doesn't matter how you live. And so Jesus said the world's going to hate you, but he said, I pray not that you take them out of the world. Now I see a bunch of Christians saying, now we're in the last days. They say that as an excuse because they don't want to face reality. They, want, they don't want to deal with persecution. They don't want to deal with pressure. They're waiting for the rapture. God didn't tell you to wait for the rapture. He just said, I pray not that you take them out of the world. When you are praying for the rapture, you're praying against the prayer of Jesus. Now the rapture will come. We don't know when, but I highly doubt it's going to come just because it becomes rough on American Christianity. I think we need to get a taste of what the other rest of the world has been going through for hundreds of years. And uh, now I don't want persecution any more than you do. However, God is more interested in the holiness of his name than he is about our convenience and our ability to tout religious freedom and sing songs while the rest of the world is going to hell. We're safe in the four walls of a building, but God has not called us to be safe. He's called us to take risks and live a life of faith outside the walls of a church and change the world. He didn't call us to escape, but to engage. Verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Powerful. So that's why this prayer is applicable to us today, because he just said, as you sent me into the world, so I send them, meaning all of the principles of this prayer could be applied to us. This is the prayer of one sent. Verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Very powerful. And so he's using the word sanctification. He said sanctify them in the truth. The word sanctify means to be set apart. Obviously, uh, we're sanctified in the truth, meaning, again, goes back to the word of God. To the extent that we allow God's word to come into our hearts, to that extent, can we be set apart for God? Because we have to think God's thoughts after him. We have to have a biblical worldview. We have to think the way he thinks about the world. If you think like God only on Sunday for two hours, if you know how to worship, but you don't think like God in business, you don't think like God in politics, you don't think like God in sports or everyday life or in the classroom, then you are not set apart for God. There's only two hours of your life set apart for him. So we can only be sanctified by the truth to every area of your life that has not been renewed by the word of God is not set apart for God. So you might be set apart for God 25% of your life, but what about the way you do business? There are some people, you would never know they were, they were Christians or deacons in a church by the way they do business, the way, to do they, the way they do politics. Or, you know, we preach one thing on Sunday and vote against our values on Tuesday, on election day. 
And he says, I want everything, I want all of it to be sanctified by the truth. And then he says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's saying it's not just for the 12 apostles. This is for everybody who hears their word, and that's us. Verse 21, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory that you've given me, I've given them, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world will know that you sent me and love me and love them even as you loved me. Very interesting. He's not praying for unity. He's praying for oneness. The church is praying for unity. Unity is just very temporary. We could have unity right now because we're all here on Sunday. Pastors could have unity in a prayer meeting. But the reason why we're not changing the world, the reason why there's not signs and wonders, the reason why we are not making a huge difference is because unity is just physical bodies coming together, doing the same thing at that time. But Jesus prayed for oneness. What is oneness? Well, Genesis chapter 2, it says he made Adam and Eve one flesh. And this oneness, he's talking about obviously not one flesh. He's talking about oneness of heart, of mind, of soul, of purpose. Brings us back to Acts chapter 2. It says, those who believe were of one heart and one soul. Neither did they claim that any of their possessions were their own, but they gave it all for the gospel. We have to go from just having mere unity to oneness. Jesus said, until we come to oneness, the world will never believe that Jesus was sent. The church has a lot of unity, more than we've ever seen in the last 30 years, but we don't have oneness. That is the prayer of Jesus, oneness. And then he wraps it up, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. And he's talking about eternity. To see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Boy, were they shocked when they saw Jesus post-ascension. John, who was the one who had his head on his chest, walked with him more than anybody else three and a half years. When he saw him in his resurrected glory, it says in Revelation chapter 1 that he became as a dead man. That's what Jesus is praying, that they see me with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus had to lift him up and say, fear not, I am he that was dead, but I am now alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Powerful, powerful. And then he said, O righteous Father, verse 25, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Interesting. He says, Father, the world doesn't know you. 
Why are we so surprised that the Supreme Court did what they did, that politicians do what they do? They're being good heathen. They're doing what they're supposed to do, right? The problem is the church didn't do what they were supposed to do for the last 40 years. As Charles Finney said, when there's a problem in uh, politics or in culture, he said the fault is with the pulpits. They have not preached the whole word of God, and people have kept Christianity from the public square. But the good news is, and this is almost hard for me to believe because it's so mind-bending, how many believe that God loves Jesus? Let me see your hands. Well, Jesus said that God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. Unbelievable, isn't it? It's incredible. So in spite of what we have to face, and this is why he ended it with that one statement, in spite of the challenges of the sent one, we can rest assured that the Father loves us as much as he loves Jesus. That doesn't mean that he's going to keep us from hardship. He didn't keep his own son from hardship to, to uh, fulfill his purpose. Now, nobody here is going to suffer the way Jesus suffered. But it does mean that he will protect our purpose and that he will keep us from every evil work and bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. That we could have fellowship with him Love him and enjoy his love for eternity. Isn't that powerful? No matter what the world tries to do, not only does Jesus love me, the Father loves us as much as he loves Jesus. Let's all stand. How many want to be sent ones into the world? I'm going to ask Apostle Ron to come up and pray that apostolic prayer over us as we have that calling from God to be those sent ones. You have just listened to a life-changing message. For more information about Dr. Matera, to read his numerous articles and teachings, or to inquire about more audio and visual resources, go to his website at www.josephgmatera.com.